0: Uh, The talk is about developing a passion for understanding or um, freedom. And last night I talked about um, the process of conserving energy, that what we do um, is a kind of voluntary renunciation. So we give up a lot of our props, outer props that hold up our idea of who we are when we come on a retreat. And in some ways, <clears throat> you know, it might be for us here that that means letting go of a lot of listening to music. You know, that, that can be one way that we <laughs> give up a lot by being here. But the reason that we do that is, uh, is to conserve energy. And the energy is meant to be going into exploring who we are or who someone else is on a very deep level. So we take the energy that's conserved uh, to increase our understanding and to uh, feed or nourish this passion that we can have for freedom. Uh, There's a question somebody talked about this morning with me, which is, you know, Well, what's going on? You know, what are we doing here on this retreat? Uh, You know the song, What's Going On? (laughs) You know, what's going on? Why are we doing this? And it's really, what we're doing is trying to ask the question, Well, who am I? You know, why did I take birth here as a human being? You know, what is it to be human? And the question, who am I, of course, always leads us to the question... Who are you? And this question isn't meant to be intellectual or analytical. And this is what's hard in meditation is that when we actually try to do the walking meditation or the sitting practice what we find is that we try to figure out intellectually what's going on because that's so much of what we're conditioned to do. And what we're asking you to do is something very simple In many ways, it's incredibly uncomplicated. It's to just try to totally be in the present moment, to develop a passion for present time awareness rather than bringing an attention to life that's really caught in the past. It's like any time we have an idea about our life in the present moment, it's not the present moment. And so we miss our life. It's just a matter of another missed experience, another missed experience, if we're caught up in our past ideas about something. So ultimately, the renunciation is giving up our past ideas about something and being really willing to be in the unknown. So this is what we're doing. We conserve the energy, which is like blowing up a balloon. And each day in the retreat, by giving up some of our preferences and some of our comforts by being here. The balloon grows a little bit more and we might get a little uncomfortable. The longer the retreat, the more the balloon blows up. And what we tend to want to do with that energy is to blow it off. You know, we'll blow it off fantasizing. We'll blow it off um, doing whatever we like to do in our mind, sitting here. Uh, We might blow it off by looking around a lot at other people or blow it off by, you know, worrying. um, On some retreats, we might blow it off by reading um, or eating too much. Uh, But if we can realize that this is about kind of moving into the unknown, it's about growing uh, and stepping over an edge of comfort, uh, that that's meant to be happening Like, as a teacher, I'm finding I'm so happy to see us all here being willing to be a little uncomfortable. Because I know there's this willingness to give up the past and be willing to face the unknown in the present moment, right now. Who am I? You know, what is the breath? What is the sound of a bird? What is my body? What is a mind? You know, these are all the questions that we ask. Uh, but again, the trouble is, is that we get <clears throat> afraid of the present moment. We get afraid of giving up our secure ideas about what we know life to be, and then we don't grow. So, I'd encourage you to watch out for self judgment. You know, because usually the first day of a retreat, especially if we're new, we have this idea that we're not concentrated enough. And often, what kind of surprises us is that we're really like a human radio. You know, if you can relate to your own thought processes, that it's like a radio that isn't turned off. Um, you'll start to struggle less with the mind wandering because the mind wanders. It's what we do. Uh, And we have to ask ourselves the question, well, the eye sees and the ear hears, the tongue tastes, and the mind thinks. Uh, But we tend to get very upset when we're thinking in meditation. We think that we have to get rid of it somehow to be free or be awake. You know, and this is the big question, do we have to get rid of our I to be free, or do we have to get rid of our mind to be free? No, we can't, you know, that's not freedom, because we've taken birth in this human body. It's the existential predicament. What's happening? What's going on? How do I get free within what's happening rather than trying to run away from how it is? Uh, So the only difference between somebody who's meditated a lot and somebody who hasn't is the kind of shock or surprise at how much the mind wanders and the judgment about how much it's wandering. And we think, you know, something's wrong, that there's so much sleepiness, there's so much restlessness. And someone who's practiced a lot of meditation tends to just go, "Mm, you know, so I slept through the whole sitting. Oh, well, it's okay so it feels like I have Mexican jumping beans in my body all sitting and I feel like running out of here screaming. That's normal. It's okay. You know, you kind of get used to dealing with ourselves. <clears throat> and so the, the eye, of course, we know is here, the ear is here. In this practice, uh, we consider the mind here, not up here. And so sometimes we use the word heart, and sometimes we use the word mind, but they they're meant to be the same thing, in this tradition. You know, so how do we what's how do we deal with this mind and body? How do we get free with it? Well, the first thing is to get out of the head, out of the thinking that we're doing so much, so that we stand a chance of seeing clearly. We can't see clearly if we're totally lost in thinking. So we try to get to the body, to sound, to the breath, not necessarily as a goal, but it's a goal in the moment of trying to anchor the attention enough with the physical sensations, um, not to be lost all the time so that we can explore. And then in that process by learning how to go, you know, to sound or body, it's like being able to say, well, yeah, I'm so dependent on the breath to survive and I don't have a clue what that experience is. And why can be, there be something so, you know, totally part of us, the breath, how come we can, why is it so hard to be interested in it? You know, we're born in this body and mind and why is it so hard for us to connect with it, to be interested in it? Why is it so hard to be in the present moment? Now it's sad that we miss so much of our life, you know. So we need to kind of get this kind of passion or urgency about being in the present moment, or we literally do miss our whole life. And we might wake up at seventy-five, going, "Wow, what happened?" I teach people like that. I've had a woman at eighty-three who came to a three-month retreat, and she was so angry. (laughs) that she hadn't started this practice till she was 83. And for ho- like a whole month she kept coming in to see me going, you know, I'm so angry. And she just couldn't be in the present moment because she was so angry. And I said, you know, you do have some moments left of your life. Why don't you try doing it now? But there was a sadness in me for her that it, she didn't start till 83. Of course, that's, that's sadder to miss a lot more of our life. I think of meditation as making new friends with ourself. And so wherever we are, we might have practiced, you know, some people have come here a lot and they might have a better sense of how to be with breath or body uh, and are more exploring the mind, you know, the thought or emotional process. But still it's developing a greater and greater relationship of understanding of ourself. Uh, So the question is, am I my body? Am I physical matter? Uh, I can say that what we call me or my body is just a constantly transforming process of earth, air, fire, and water. But really what I would ask you to do is check it out. You know, what what is the direct experience of a breath? Well, actually, it's air element. And when we take an in-breath, at what point does that air element become me? And at what point is it Steve's or Jenna's or Michael's? It's, it's really a deep investigation. You know, and when it's outside of me, is that not me? With something very refined as air. And then the reason why being with the breath is so hard is because it's so refined, it's just air. Whereas if I asked you to just pay attention to where your um, butt hits the cushion, of course, that's easier. That's earth element. There's hardness and softness. You know, so if you have any trouble with the mind wandering, try being, just bring the attention to your hands. There'll be earth element and but there'll also be fire element, especially <laughs> the fire element is particularly strong today. It's hot. But we borrow fire element to have a body. We borrow earth element to have a body. We borrow water element to have a body. When we're eating, at what point when we're eating the potato does that potato become me? And when it comes out, does that mean that's not me? You know, these are the real questions in meditation in terms of the body. And the reason is because if we can see ourselves as a changing process of earth, air, fire, and water, we're free. If we think this is my body and that everything that's happening to it, how it looks, how it, you know, burps, how it farts, you know, how it does all these things. If we think that's me, and then aging or changing, we're all changing. Um, Again, we suffer a lot when we get so identified with this body as me. And then on the other level, when we start to see that we're so interconnected, that whether we're a bird or a mosquito or a snake or a human being, that we're all made up of the same stuff. It certainly brings us together. Yeah. so the truth is that we're misperceiving ourselves to be separate. And this meditation practice is to help us clear the perception. You know, that we're imprisoned by a misperception of feeling like we're alienated and separate rather than connected. And I don't know anything else. I can assure you I've tried everything else to not have to do this because I think of mindfulness as a last resort. You know, I've tried to learn to be free in other ways, but it didn't work. You know, because it really comes down to how we're perceiving reality. Uh, so we've, we've been sitting long enough to, for example, start to know that when we sit long enough, there's pain that comes up in the body. And on the retreat of this length, a lot of it is the surface pain, not the kind of deeper um, karmic knots and aches that we bring into this life with. But these are just the adjustment to sitting here. Um, And it's important to know how to relate to it because if you can get interested in it, not as this word, we know what the word pain is, we have an idea about it, but we're either going to get imprisoned by that idea, of pain, or we can be free with it and explore it. And it's pain is just a, a word for an intense sensation of earth, air, fire, or water. Usually it's, you know, tightness or hardness or burning. Uh, and if you can be interested in it, this, these sensations will come and go by themselves. They're not you, pain isn't me and you'll feel this invigoration that comes from understanding what physical matter is and no matter what happens in our life because you can't control whether you'll be in pain or pleasure or neutrality you'll start to learn how to be free no matter what's happening in your life physically and as Marvin said this this is like a a a very intense sport um You know when you practice a sport, your muscles get tight as you start to train, uh, and you go through pain as you start to get used to um, whatever way that we're working out in that sport. It's the same in this practice. It's a stretch physically to do this, but as you do it, you get, and it, it can be painful, but the body starts getting better and better at doing it. So initially it's like um, a muscle that gets um, tight in a sport. Uh, So if you have some energy when you're sitting or interest and an itch arises, or a pain, what we call a pain arises, see if you don't move. See what happens if you don't move. See what happens if you can explore it. Um, If you're tired, You might not be able to do that and then it might be better to scratch or better to move. So we don't say, you always do it this way or that you should do it this way. It's you learn how to do it as you go through the days here and you can learn when it's really important to be a warrior and you have the energy and you do it, you sit through it. And other times it's much better to say, oh, I'm not developing understanding here. I'm developing hatred of pain. You know, I'm developing hatred of meditation. Or, you know, we just can't figure out why we're doing it. You can very easily at that point, like we've said, you know, move your body a little bit. But you don't have to keep moving it. Just move to another position for a while. And if you're really restless or really sleepy, stand up. You know, standing meditation is great. Lying meditation is another kind of meditation, which we're not encouraging in the hall, because we're not that experienced enough not to go to sleep. It's hard enough not to go to sleep when we're sitting up. Uh, you know, and there's different ways to learn to try to intervene when sleepiness comes. And actually, if you look carefully, often sleepiness happens when we're more concentrated. So you really feel like you're able to be with the breath and the next thing you know, you nod. That's a surprise and it's because the attention is actually really there and concentrated, but then there's not enough energy to maintain it and we sink, it's called sinking mind. Restlessness is the exact opposite. Restlessness is a lot of energy, but we can't concentrate. You bring your attention to a sound, the attention falls off we bring our attention to the breath it slips to a thought it slips it can't stick anywhere it's often more frustrating and we really recommend trying to go to hearing because if you just listen like you listen to a symphony with restlessness or you know shift your position again probably the knees up or the legs out that energy will come into balance at some point. And then if you do the walking and you still feel restless, walk quickly. You don't have to walk slowly. Sleepiness is a little harder um, in terms of giving the exact technique to work with it, but opening the eyes tends to help. Uh, adding a touch point with the breath, like if you're with in-out breath at the nostrils. when it When it the out-breath starts to disappear, bring the attention to the sensations in the lips or the sensations in the hands. Or if you're with rising, falling, it would be rising, falling sensations in the hands or sensations in the body. With sleepiness, you give yourself more to do. Sometimes we recommend dropping the breath and just bringing the attention to about six, what we call, touch points. So you'd bring your attention to maybe the left shoulder right hip, left knee, where are we, (laughs) you know, you you just change around, you know, so that you have to think to do it, you know, and so you kind of keep moving, and it doesn't matter so much if you feel anything or not, so say you go to the left shoulder and you don't feel anything, you just bring your attention there and move to the right hip. You know, you bring the attention there, maybe you notice tightness. You move to the left knee, and then move to the right knee, left hip, right shoulder. Um, These are just different ways to see if you can stay awake. But if you fall asleep, it's okay. It's just sleeping. I crowned myself the queen of sleepiness over the years in my meditation practice, and I've never found somebody who could win the crown it's okay eventually you wake up standing remember opening the eyes if if the sleepiness and restlessness are getting intense and then standing so the idea with the physical sensations with the sound or breath or body is to start to see that I'm not sound I'm not breath, I'm not body, and we start to let the sensations come and go by themselves. It's like listening to a wave on a beach and letting the wave take birth, receive it, let it live itself out, and pass away. That's what we're really trying to do in meditation, let each moment uh, take birth. It's like each moment is a new arrival, and then it dies. The next moment is a new arrival. It dies. And ultimately we face our resistance to change in this meditation practice. We have a lot of resistance that that each moment is taking birth and passing away, taking birth and passing away. Um, But the wisdom and compassion comes out of our ability to face this incredible change that we call my life, or my body. I mean, try staying a child, for example, right now, if we don't want to move into our 20s. You might try staying a child, but you can try to stay a child until you're 30 or 40, but at some point <laughs> the gray hairs come and you can't see anymore and you can't do it. We can't stop that process of life changing. And that's what we face when we sit and walk in the meditation practice. So what's harder is when we move from sounds or body or uh, breath, tomorrow we're going to start giving instruction for working with thought and emotion. And this is when there's a deeper freedom that happens when we start to understand that I am not my thoughts. And I am not my emotions. And this takes a lot of practice to be able to not, you know, it's like our mind is like Velcro and the thought comes and we just get stuck in it and we start thinking about it, thinking about it and we really believe it so maybe we think we did something stupid which we do a lot and we might, you know, be embarrassed and go over, over, and over, and over again in our mind how stupid we are but is that really true? These are just thoughts that come and go by themselves, they're not ours, but you can't control them. So there can be a lot of emphasis sometimes in life and sort of trying to change what's actually going through our mind and replacing certain thought patterns with other thought patterns. Well, that can work somewhat, but in some ways we ultimately have to face that our minds are out of control. They just think what they think. And we can start not taking it personally. They're not ours. You know, and for me, I mean, to me, that's the whole crux of the meditation practice. If we can start getting some space around who we think we are versus who we really are, which is so much more than being lost in these thoughts. You know, If you, we'll encourage you tomorrow at times when you have the energy to really look at a thought directly and to see that it, what is it? Is it physical? How, how tangible is a thought really? What is it? Is it an image? Is it a color? Is it a word? And then how much power they have over us in the world, and yet they're nothing. There is, they're more insubstantial than anything, and are you going to let yourself be a victim of that? Are we going to let ourselves be victims of our minds and emotions? And then the last thing we tend to introduce is emotion because emotion like fear or happiness or joy or sadness or loneliness, longing, you know, these are emotions that have physical sensations and also thoughts. And so these are a little trickier to know, to again, be mindful of. Mindfulness means that we aren't passive. You know, we don't let ourselves get run over by them and get drowning in them and lost in them. Um, We're very alert. We see them clearly, but we let them be. Because we know if we let them be, they're just going to come and go by themselves and they're not a problem. But if we drown in them, they become a big problem. Problem. One of the things that can come up a lot in meditation retreats is what we call VRs and VVs. And uh, we call this meditation practice Vipassana. So VRs are Vipassana romances, and VVs are Vipassana vendettas. Uh, And just to kind of, if you can have some kind of humor and space around this, and just listen to what I say about it, it's kind of interesting because probably by now, you've got everybody pegged here. And you'll know who you like and who you don't like, even though you don't know them. And it might be just by looking at their shoes. Uh, And it's another place, in terms of the mind or the emotion, to start seeing if we can understand that we can't control who we're attracted to and we can't control who we don't like. It's too quick. And check it out. See if you can really... Investigate this for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Um, but our whole world runs on this. We tend to see something like a, a, a pair of shoes or, you know, an earring or a nose or something, and we either like it or we don't like it. And then we make up this whole story about the person. We might marry them and divorce them, uh, maybe have kids with them or not, in one sitting. Uh, that's a VR. And I've had people come to three month retreats and do that the whole three months. They get so attached to somebody and every sitting they're thinking about, you know, getting involved with them and picture leaving the retreat with them and, you know, the whole thing. Uh, and it's like, eventually what we try to do as teachers is to say, You're getting caught outside of yourself, but the pleasure is happening in here. It's happening in the mind. And we tend to spend our whole life running after something outside that is changing, we can't depend on it. But if we can start seeing that when we don't like something about somebody, it's not happening out there. We think it is, but actually that unpleasantness is happening in here. Or the pleasantness is happening here instead of being like a dog chasing after phantoms, which again is being a victim of how life is, we can start getting quiet, settling in and seeing, wow, this is all happening in here. Now that's why I say, you know, when you come in to sit, just settle back and watch the show. It's your movie. Your movie's different than my movie. It's a pretty universal movie. When we get really bored, We tend to be able to have a fantasy where we save the world, have a romance. What's the other one? Oh, great career. You know, we tend to do them all in one fantasy. Uh, We get really lost. We get really out of the present moment. And then we realize it's just a thought. What am I doing with my life? Is that really what I want to be doing? So even with um, boredom, it's not life that's boring. It's not the sitting hall that's boring or the walking. It's us that are boring (laughs) at that point. You know, we tend to blame life for being boring at times, but really it's our capacity for being interested in what's happening or not. And I used to suffer in meditation practice so much around boredom. When boredom would come, I would think it was my fault and I would think if, just I, if I could work harder and try harder, my meditation would be better. But actually I missed that I was judging the boredom. I was judging myself for having the boredom and I wasn't really experiencing it. It's just boredom and you can learn to be even interested in it. Culturally, this is radical. For us to get interested in boredom in this culture when the whole emphasis is to be plugged in on any level possible, again, you know, I find that when people in meditation practice can let themselves be bored, they can go deeper. Because you have to go through boredom to go to the deeper places in meditation practice and through the irritation, through the restlessness, through the VRs, through the VVs, the great part of this retreat is that you can check out, sooner than an adult retreat, you know, what you're thinking about somebody. You know, you might be attracted and then talk to them and go, oh, you know, why, why was I liking this person? You know, Or we might really not like somebody and then we have a chance to talk and we realize, wow, they're really far out. But just try to keep in mind it's all just thoughts, it's all just opinions. Uh, And if we're really exploring ourselves are worth being interested in and others are really being worth interested in. If we can get through our likes and dislikes about any moment, any moment, we don't miss the experience, we don't miss the person, because we're free of being imprisoned by our likes and dislikes. Can you imagine how many people you've written off and they're incredible people or how many people you've thought are really great and you realize that maybe you're getting too attached and you're missing more of life? I wanted to end with a quote from a book called Siddhartha. And somebody um, just dropped this off for me here. Somebody came by that I didn't have time to see. Uh, But the story behind it is that when I was 13, my mom died. And when I touched her cold body, it was like I went into another, like an altered state. And it changed my life so dramatically, um, I just facing death that, that young and so completely really woke me up in terms of, you know, what am I doing here? You know, what is death? What is birth? Um, and no one in my family, um, could, could handle that my mother had died and no one talked about it and I was really alone with the pain and um, searching, I was really searching, but my neighbor even though she couldn't really talk to me about it, gave me this book, Siddhartha, by Hermann Hesse, uh, and it was like this gift in the whole process of someone kind of reaching out and saying, well maybe this, if you read this, it'll help, and it really did. It's a, it's, it was about um, a person in India, in you know, a modeled after the Buddha, Siddhartha, who searched really deeply for understanding, you know, what is freedom? What is taking birth here? What's life all about? Uh, so I wanted to read the end. The, it's, it's it's a story of a relationship between two people, Siddhartha and Govinda. And at the end, they're old men. And Siddhartha found freedom and found peace, and his friend Govinda didn't. And so they're, they're so old, they have to kind of come to terms with this um, difference in them. So this man, Govinda, says, Siddhartha, we are now old men. We may never see each other again in this life. I can see, my dear friend, that you have found peace. I realize that I have not found it tell me one more word, tell me something that I can conceive, something I can understand. Give me something to help me on my way. My path is often hard and dark. And so Siddhartha says, bend near to me. Come quite close and kiss me on the forehead. And he's surprised, but he starts to do it. And as he bends to kiss his friend's forehead for the last time, He says he no longer saw the face of his friend. Instead, he saw other faces, many faces, a long series, a continuous stream of faces, hundreds, thousands, which all came and disappeared, and yet all seemed to be there at the same time, which all continually changed and renewed themselves, and which were yet all Siddhartha. He saw the face of a fish with tremendous Painful, open mouth, a dying fish with dimmed eyes. He saw the face of a newborn child, red and full of wrinkles, ready to cry. He saw the face of a murderer, saw him plunge a knife into the body of a man. At the same moment, he saw this criminal kneeling down, bound and his head cut off by an executioner. He saw the naked bodies of men and women in the postures of passionate love. He saw corpses stretched out, cold and empty. He saw the heads of animals, crocodiles, elephants, birds. He saw all these forms and faces, all helping each other, loving, hating, and destroying each other, and become newly born. Each one was mortal, a passionate, painful example of all that is changing. Yet none of them died, they only changed were always reborn, continually had a new face, only time stood between one face and another. All of these forms and faces flowed, reproduced, swam past and merged into each other and over them all there was continually something thin, unreal and yet existing stretched across like thin glass or ice, like a transparent skin, shell, form, or mask of water. And this mask was his friend's smiling face, which Govinda touched, his friend touched with his lips at this moment. And he saw that this mask-like smile, the smile of his friend, the unity over the flowing forms, the smile of simultaneousness, over the thousands of births and deaths, this smile of the Buddha, or Siddhartha, was exactly the same as the calm, delicate, impenetrable, gracious, perhaps mocking and wise, thousandfold smile of the Buddha. His friend Govinda bowed low, incontrollable tears trickled down his old face. He was overwhelmed by a feeling of great love. He bowed low, right down to the ground, in front of the person, his friend, sitting there, whose smile reminded him of everything that he had ever loved in his life, of everything that had been of value and holy in his life. So even though we might get uncomfortable, I think it's worth developing this passion for love and freedom. So let's just sit for one minute, and then we'll have tea. So I want to thank you for working so hard at this. I know it's not easy sometimes. May we be peaceful and free from suffering. So please keep the silence till we leave the hall. (music) you <music>